millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 25 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, August the 3rd. First, I talk to Danny May, co-founder and CEO of emerging Australian startup Lingmo International, which has launched Talk To You, a voice messaging translation service available exclusively on their new smartwatch. Lingmo's Talk to You brings translation to the burgeoning voice messaging market, enabling up to 1,000 users to converse in a group chat across nine of the most widely spoken languages. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Lingmo's market-leading software processes translations via IBM Cloud to the languages supported by IBM Watson's artificial intelligence technology, including Mandarin, Japanese, French, Italian, Spanish, Brazilian, Portuguese, German, Arabic, and English. These nine languages represent 90% of the world's most commonly spoken languages in business. And then I have a chat with RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel about the Australian housing market. Prices are heading down. What can we expect now? And what impact will it have on the economy? But first, let's talk to Danny May. Danny, let's talk about Lingmo International. Yep. Uh, this is Australian startup. Tell us about it. So I formed Lingmo um, International about five years ago. Um, I found a problem when I'm originally a plumber. 
So my formal qualifications, I'm a plumber. Um, and my role was to, um, I was sourcing hot water products from China. And what happened was my first trip to China, my passport was stolen. So I went up and found a police officer that didn't speak English. So I translated, uh, sorry, I, I downloaded a, a translation app, which is now a competitor, and tried something simple, which was, hello, how are you, into it. And it come out, hello, I love you. Um, so that didn't go down too well with the, the police officer. So, you know, I thought, what, how many other people are having this same problem? So that's kind of where the idea started from, from that instance where I had my pain point and sort of flowed on from there. So you have now launched Talk To You, which is a voice messaging translation service. Yes. Yes. We just launched that last week. And this is available on what? A smartwatch? Yeah, so we've got it on a, on a product called Time to Translate at the moment, which is a smartwatch. Um, so what Talk to You does is we we built that to probably the best way to describe is a lot of people um, in international, not just international business, but you know for um, pleasure and stuff, they want to communicate with people overseas. They don't want to have to go through a translation, you know, type the message and translate. So what we did was we created this software so. Um, you can leave. You can send instant voice messages, and on the way they translate. So the best way to describe it is, um, if you use WeChat or, or WhatsApp, um, you push the button, you leave a voice message in English, and it re- and the recipient gets it in English. So what Talk to You does is, you you push the button, you leave it in English or your native tongue, and then the recipient gets it in their native tongue. If they choose Chinese, they chose Italian, Japanese, whatever it was. They get it in in that in their language. So that's, what it does, it, it, it's it's empowering people. That's you know it can the the biggest CEOs in the world could use this, use this for their for their business, but also it, it can help um, small time manufacturers in rural China um, communicate with the the Western world to to increase sales for their for their company. So what languages does it offer? So we do uh, Chinese. English, uh, so we've got US English, UK English, Arabic, Italian, French, Spanish, uh, Brazilian Portuguese, and we're just adding now Korean, which will be available on this one. And when you say Chinese, you mean Mandarin? Mandarin, yeah. 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 Working on Cantonese, but at the moment we're just doing Mandarin to start, um, and then, then we'll work on Cantonese. Well, these languages represent about 90% of the world's most commonly spoken languages in business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it's supported by IBM's artificial intelligence technology. Is that right? Yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah. We've done a collaboration with IBM and we, we utilize uh, IBM Watson. Right. Okay. Okay. So how did you organize that? Um. Well, after I after the initial problem I had when I was in China, um, we started building our own uh, machine learning. So we, we found the problem and we started designing our own. Um, about six months into it, I was introduced to a gentleman named uh, Neil Sahoda. So he's a IBM master inventor and he looks after Watson um, globally. So he's a, um, the business development leader for IBM Watson. So he he introduced we got introduced to him and then he... So there was trying to, you know, get us into AI in the Watson. I had to do, you know, a bit of research on it. So eventually we took the plunge and we, we gave Watson a go and we haven't turned back. What does Watson actually offer? 
So what what it offers compared to the competition? Because when I did my market research, I looked at the IBM's competitors. Um, so what IBM what um, Watson offers us, and what we're really um, proud to say it is, it's the security. Um, so you get your raw data set from from Watson. So anyone you know, you anyone on the street could go into Watson and and buy, um, put your credit card down, and get access to their APIs. But what you you get with Watson is you're able to train your own data set. So we we you know we we're on a um, what's called a global entrepreneurship program with IBM. So within our um, platform, we train our own system. So we train it how we want to train it, but it stays our own. Whereas competitors, um, if you know, that's why we've been very open that we use IBM because we know that no one can get hold of our data. We train in a specific way, and that's the, and no one else can get hold of that. Whereas, you know, competitors, when we're looking at them, they, you build a product, you get access to their APIs and, you know, you pay for it on a, on a per call basis. But then someone sees that you're using um, that competitor and they can go and buy the exact same service just by putting their credit card down and getting the exact same result. So with Watson, we just have it. It's in our own database and we move forward from there. Now, it's a wearable, isn't it? It's a wearable, yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Yep. So, uh, how how popular has the earpiece been? Um, we sold out in the so I launched the Translate One to One in June last year at the AI for Good Summit in Geneva. So we actually sold out of our first pre-sale in sixteen days. So it's been pretty pretty popular. Um, we've got some feedback that we just received from our users. Um, so it's been used in over 36 countries, and that's pretty good considering you've only got nine languages in there. So that's why that 90%, um, you know, business sort of languages were covered. Um, but what, you know, what really shocked us was our biggest market was Brazil. We sold more units into Brazil than the US and Europe combined. Why is that? Um, because we've got Brazilian Portuguese as our dialect within um within watson so what we use and brazil in south america is the only portuguese speaking country everyone speaks spanish around them so for business there and we because we do spanish um from user feedback that's why people have been used, are buying it right 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 now i mean in the past translation capabilities by computers were pretty much restricted by uh systems were actually translating word for word, which yep. often resulted in miscommunications. Yep. So how does the technology break that down in your system? So what we've done is, again, that's something when, when I first started, I did the full market research, and exactly what you just said then was um, what I found. You know, there's two pain points. One was accuracy time, like latency, and one was, sorry, the accuracy so how we've done it with with accuracy and and we put it into context. So we train it different. So a little trade secret for you, I guess, if you, you will. We train Watson to watch movies. Now, people seem you know think that's unconventional or it's very weird to train a system to watch movies. But what we did was we trained it to watch movies and it has subtitles at the bottom of the movies, just like you, it's in a different language. And Watson, what Watson actually does is it learns and takes things in the context. So we really did not want to do literal word for word. So we've been training and training Watson in unconventional ways to take it in, to put um, the translation in the context. Right, 
Right. And that, of course, watching movies doesn't allow it to put it into context. Exactly. It, it allows it to put it into context. Yeah. So, you know, it's, we've, we've trained, I think we've trained it to watch, you know, about 20 movies so far and, you know, we continually train it. Um, but we train it across the nine languages that we can get the, the subtitles into. Right. Okay. Okay. What are the most common language combinations? Most common la- common um, languages that we're doing so far is um, obviously Portuguese or Spanish because that's our highest highest market. Um, but then we've got um, Chinese to English, so it's pretty big in China, as well as Spanish to English. So they're our top three. Right. Okay. Okay. And that, that's that's quite extraordinary. And yeah. uh, and and this is pretty much focused on the B two B market, is it not? Um, no, it's B two C. So we're we're we're, we're kind of unconventional, Leon, if if we put it that way. You know, generally a company has a focus on B two C or B two B. We are targeting both markets. Um, we found with Translate One to One, so the earpiece we launched last year, that is being used primarily by businesses for training. So we're talking. We've got um, proof of concepts and, and companies that are big multinational companies out of the US um, and Europe, airlines in Europe, using it for training purposes of their staff. It's it's much more cost effective to buy a pair of these than what it is to um, hire translators. Um, whereas the new wearable time to translate, which is the watch, that's primarily focused towards the B2C. Right. Okay. Okay. And uh, how much does the watch cost? Can I ask? The watch is six ninety nine US. Six ninety nine US. Yes. Yep. yep. Right. Okay. Okay. And that's that's quite extraordinary. It's quite extraordinary. And uh, and and it's available anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. So what what's you know we got some valuable feedback from our customers and the the earpieces you needed two devices for them to work anywhere around the world because they're independent so they require a SIM card to to work. You know you don't. You can connect to Wi-Fi, but it's not, you know, it's not a necessity. You can use a SIM card. So with the watch, we actually put it so it has a tri-band in there. So you can put a SIM card in if you have a travel roaming travel SIM. You can use it anywhere around the world. So what are you, what what are your next plans? Um, obviously, next I'm going to Las Vegas next week. Um, I'm doing a, a keynote for IBM at Think, their biggest conference of the year. Um, but moving forward with technology. It's really about um, getting the time to translate to the smartwatch out there in the market um, and, and gaining awareness for this new product because um, talk to you, which is the, the instant messaging one, because that there, it's, it's a game changer. There's no one else doing it, and we've just got to really train the consumer on how to use it and obviously the benefits they can see. Everyone that does business... Um, and has you know the multinational companies that have sort of offices around the world instantly see the benefit from it, um, but it's training the consumer on how they can best use it. You know whether it be send a message to a hotel um, saying they're they're running late instead of trying to negotiate, um, say a, a Chinese speaker in Shanghai. So it's just about training the consumer on 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 the best way to use the products. Well, Danny, that is an extraordinary story, and. Congratulations, and it's been terrific talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. No worries. And now let's talk to economist Jonathan Boimel. Jonathan Boimel, the house prices here are heading down, and we have had warnings from BIS Oxford Economics that we're going to see a price contraction, the likes of which we've never seen since the global financial crisis of 2008. What's your view about that? 
Well, we are seeing a softening of housing conditions, uh, which is being driven by Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, all capital cities besides Hobart and Perth are showing softer conditions um, compared to last year. Um, we know that in Melbourne, um, the decline has started later than Sydney, but now Melbourne has the weakest housing market in the nation when you look at a, on a quarterly basis. Uh, Melbourne property prices fell 2.2% uh, in the last three months, uh, which is the biggest hit um, since 2012. Um, of course, closely followed by, by Sydney, where the median price fell 1.4%. And in annual terms, Sydney leads the fall. Uh, Sydney house prices fell 4.5% in the year to June. Um, that's the fastest decline in, in a decade. Um, where we're heading... Well, that's, a, that's a, another thing. The consensus of economists is that uh, weakness is expected to persist for around another year and a half. Um, so, but again, that's relying on, on the forecasts of you know, a, number, a number of economists. Uh, but the extent of the duration in, in property price falls is, is largely unknown. Um, and it depends what's going to happen um, to credit, the tightening of credit, depends what's going to be happening to interest rate rises. Um, so again, general consensus, we're going to see these, these softening conditions for a year and a half. Um, if you'd asked me where the market was heading, it, it, it's too, too soon, too soon to say. Well, the consensus of a lot of economists is that uh, we're not going to see an interest rate rise until 2020. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that should provide some degree of stability, um, as much as the RBA can, can provide, um, without stoking inflationary pressures. Um, and we've seen uh, higher than expected inflation uh, recently, um, although underlying inflation, once you strip out petrol prices and so on, um, we're looking a little bit, a little bit safer, um, but the headline inflation figure has, you know, has picked up. Um, so the RBA has to, you know, has to has to make this this trade off. You know, to what extent do they want to support house prices um, versus curtail inflation, keep it at within the the two to three percent band? But I think the the RBA, if you look at the minutes, you know, they're satisfied with what's with what's happening. Um, they're aware of the level of household debt, um, in particular that household debt um, that is being used to fund property purchases, which is the, the level of that is, is rather unique uh, in the Western world. Um, so they're, they're cautious, obviously, but I think they are satisfied with, um, with, with the softening of the, the housing market. And they probably believe that over time, be a strengthening in employment, strengthening in in, uh, in incomes, um, households will be able to support the debt, um, and so a continued softening from the perspective of the RBA is is not a bad idea. is is, is not a bad thing. But again, we know that this is going to have real effects on on the economy, and we saw that in in Perth. Um, we know that there's a, a real wealth effect when it comes to house prices, a very strong link between you know, 
the value of, of assets that a household holds and the level of consumption. Um, and we saw when Perth house prices were, were sliding, weakness in, in uh, consumption in, in Perth. Um, so if Perth looks like it's relatively stable now, but we've seen a drop um, in Sydney for over a year. We've seen now a drop in Melbourne. Um, you would expect that this will have an impact on the on the real economy, uh, on consumption. But uh, the worrying part is what happened in the United States and, for that matter, other parts of the world when, in 2008 when housing prices collapsed and that led to the global financial crisis. It led to a banking crisis and sure. the global financial crisis. So that's the worry here, isn't it? Well, I think investors have largely lost their appetite for residential property um, in Australia. Um, but we know that there are first home buyers who would be eager to step in. Okay, so there are, there, there are opportunities for other players in the market uh, to step in. Um, I don't think um, the Australian financial system faces um, the same type of uh, settings or situations that that existed um, in the US uh, during the during the financial crisis. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be as concerned. Um, we know that. Um, financial institutions in the US relied on a number of assets um, for for revenue that that this, the Australian financial system just doesn't doesn't rely on, right? Um, of course, it depends upon the extent to which house prices actually do decline. I don't expect that we'd see a complete reversal the gains that have been made over the last five years. And I think that's what we have to put these, these um, softening conditions into, into the perspective of. Um, you know, even if we see a 10% decline um, from peak to trough in Sydney, right, that's only going to take us back, you know, a year and a half uh, to, where, to where we were when it comes to house prices. So I think we've had, you know, rapid house price growth. We're now seeing some gradual softening. But again, putting that gradual softening um, within the context of the rapid growth that we saw um, does not give rise to, to concern perhaps that, that, that you were expressing you were expressing previously. Nonetheless, uh, there are people who... Uh, we, we have the issue of household indebtedness. Sure. It's very high in Australia. Absolutely. And uh, the Reserve Bank has acknowledged that. Yeah. And lots of people have uh, mortgaged up to their eyeballs. Yes. Uh, buying house on... Buying property on, for their investment portfolio on, say, 10% deposit. Yeah. And uh, now the value of the property has shrunk. So they, are, they have negative equity. Yep. The value of the property is less than what they yeah. paid for. Yeah. Isn't that a worry? It is a worry, and we need stronger economic activity to stimulate jobs, to lead to stronger income growth, to enable households to pay their debt. That will be a priority um, for the Reserve Bank and the federal government um, over the next few years. 
um, as we see housing conditions continue to continue to soften. But absolutely, it's a concern, um, and it needs to be a priority, um, rather than perhaps a focus on inflation and inflationary pressures. Right, but uh, the issue is that wages growth remains very low, and that is the problem, isn't it? It is a, it is a problem. It is a problem. Um, and again, we need stronger economic activity. Um, stronger economic activity will, in time, generate stronger wages growth. Um, that is the only way um, in which um, households will be able to pay the debts that they've accumulated that are associated with, with purchases of, of, of properties over the last few years. Right, right. But you're saying for the time being, you're, uh, you're saying there's no time frame, but you're saying at least a year and a half? A year and a half. Again, that's the consensus of, of economists. Um, it's very early days, and particularly in Melbourne, it's very early days. Um, but I wouldn't expect a complete reversal of the gains that we've seen. Um, and I'd also expect that the softening um, that we're seeing... Um, will be more gradual than the rapid increase in prices that we had seen five years before that. But it's quite possible that it might, the price drops might be arrested, but they would plateau rather than increasing massively again. Sure. And these price drops are likely to be localised also, right? So in the eastern suburbs we're likely to see far more significant declines simply because we saw f more significant increases in the, previous, in the previous five years. So those areas outside of the, of the inner east, for example, when it comes to Melbourne, should support um, general um, or median house prices in, uh, in Melbourne. But we're seeing really heavy discounting um, in the inner east in, in Melbourne. So you're likely to see different price falls in different markets. Right, and so you'll have to look at the respective markets to pick out which is which? Exactly. exactly. And that's all over Australia? That's right, that's right. It's just not just in Melbourne. Right. <laughs> well, Jonathan Boimel, thank you very much for your time. Leon, thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the US and China are trying to restart talks aimed at averting a full-blown trade war between the world's two largest economies. High-level US talks on the Trump administration's trade posture towards China are taking place this week. Representatives of US Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Chinese Vice Premier Liu He are having private conversations as they look for ways to re-engage in negotiations. A specific timetable, the issues to be discussed and the format for talks aren't finalised. But there's agreement among the principals that more discussions need to take place. Now, negotiations to resolve the dispute have been stalled for weeks and both sides have refused to budge. And investors have been bailing from tech stocks since Facebook's earnings on July the 25th, prompting the biggest market cap decline in US history. And Morgan Stanley says it's a sign that the stock rally might have exhausted itself. Not even the biggest winners of the year are posting reliable gains. As earnings missing from the likes of Netflix and Facebook's hamper the momentum trade, 
Morgan Stanley says risks to the July stock rally are building. And it says peaking growth rates and extended positioning with a slide that started last week will only get worse. And they say it will lead to the biggest correction this year. So watch out. Now, the Australian manufacturing sector slowed sharply last month. The Australian Industry Group's Australian Performance of Manufacturing Index fell 5.4 points to 52 points. That's the weakest result since October 2017. While any number above 50 still points to expansion, the contraction could be a significant point of concern. Nonetheless, the index has been expanding for 22 months now. The latest figures, however, show it's growing at a slower pace. Sales dropped markedly by 15.7 points to 45.5 points in July. That's the lowest result since early 2016. Although it has to be said that the sales subindex tends to be volatile around the end of each financial year. Higher production costs with an increase in wages were cited by manufacturers as factors. Many noted the increase in wage rates from the 1st of July, the date when the Fair Work Commission's 3.5% minimum wage rise came into operation. Now, the markets will be watching closely to see how the figures for construction and services are tracking to get an idea of where the Australian economy is heading. And an emphatic by-election defeat might force Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull to dump his flagship company tax cuts as Liberals and Nationals canvass a dramatic policy shift to heed the message from voters. A dangerous swing against the government in the Queensland electorate of Longman, on a day the Australian Labor Party held four of the five contested seats, has fuelled talk of a new approach to policy and political tactics. And MPs admit the results have put the government on a path to defeat at the next general election. The case for change includes an argument to shelve the company tax cuts if the Senate blocks the government again, setting up an opportunity to rewrite a budget measure that sacrifices $35.6 billion in revenue over a decade. But Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has defied internal pressure to budge on this company tax cut package. And Treasurer Scott Morrison remains committed to cut taxes for businesses earning more than $50 million per annum. Scott Morrison has vowed to take the government's company tax cuts to another vote in Parliament within weeks in what could be a make-or-break decision that clears the ground for a policy rethink if the Senate blocks the changes. Mr Morrison insists the government would proceed with the $35.6 billion tax cut for big companies over 10 years, despite growing signs of nerves among his colleagues over the Labor attack on the plan. But with Pauline Hanson's One Nation holding out against the policy, the government faces a significant challenge in the upper house, although Finance Minister Matthias Cormann has surprised critics by getting other parts of the policy through. Now, during the week, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull held talks with some cabinet ministers and repeated his commitment to the policy. Although there's an expectation within the government that the Senate vote might trigger further discussions. Options being canvassed across the government without a formal cabinet deliberation include getting as much possible through the upper house before shelving whatever can't be achieved. Some ministers are open to the idea of taking the policy out of the budget and using the funds for another purpose or for budget repair. Seeing this as recognition of the reality of any further Senate rejection. And there's also some support for the idea of diverting some of the money to a bigger tax cut for small business, helping to honour coalition pledges to offer lower taxes. Now, Australian households are basically treading water, according to the Melbourne Institute's Study of Household Income and Labour Dynamics, or HILDA as it's otherwise known.
The survey shows typical post-tax real incomes for households has not risen noticeably since 2009. Now, in 2009, the median household had a disposable income of $79,160 at 2016 price levels. And by 2016, the latest year of the available HILDA data, the median income had barely risen to 79244 So, you've got $79,160 in 2009 and $79,244 in 2016. On the plus side, real incomes adjusted for inflation rose 1.8% compared to 2015, and the first stage of the mining boom drove real income growth of 29% between 2003 and 2009. At the same time, income inequality, as measured by the Gini coefficient, remained relatively steady throughout the entire period since Hilda started in 2001, although the report noted that high-income earners had done better than anyone else. Now, the Hilda report will be examined closely by the Reserve Bank of Australia and other policymakers to get a snapshot of the way the economy is tracking. And the report notes that while Australia escaped the worst effects of the global financial crisis, it marked a turning point for the workforce, with part-time employment rising from just over 10 to approximately 14%, and full-time employment falling from 73.3% in 2008 to 67% in 2016. Full-time employment for women aged 18 to 64 was slightly below its pre-GFC peak of almost 40%. And this also coincided with a rise in underemployment, jumping to well over 8% according to Australian Bureau of Statistics data. And show me the honey! The Chinese private equity firm that swooped on CTEX Medical just months ago has another sweet healthcare deal in its site. CDH Investments, which is in the midst of a $7 billion spending spree in the health sector, is among the bidders for Pacific Equity Partners' honey-based products maker, Manuka Health. The emergence of a deep-pocketed Chinese buyer, which has shown it's not afraid to swing hard for assets in Australia and across the Tasman, particularly in the health and wellness sector, is expected to be a welcome one. It's all part of a trend across Australasia where Chinese companies are looking to snap up brands which were delivering exceptional growth rates as Chinese consumers flock to the clean and green reputations of Australia and New Zealand. Manuka Health is a vertically integrated honey producer, collecting honey at the beehive and exporting products to more than 45 countries and 11,000 retail stores. Its offerings include functional foods, flavoured Manuka honey, Manuka honey powder, dietary supplements, and wound care and beauty products. And private hospital operator HealthScope will sell its Asian pathology business for $279 million to entities controlled by funds managed by TPG Capital Asia. It expects to complete the transaction by the end of August and to book a one-off gain of $165 million in its 2018-19 financial results. And the sale proceeds will be used to pay down debt and fund the company's expansion plans. Now, in May, HealthScope flagged it would be selling its hospitals and leasing them back as it tries to hold off dual bidders for the company. It said at the time it was assessing a few offers it had received for its Asian pathology business. Now, the Asian pathology operations consist of 39 pathology laboratories across Singapore, Malaysia and Vietnam that operate under the Gribbles Pathology and Quest Laboratories brands. And they contributed EBITDA of $18.2 million in the 2017 financial year and $9.6 million in the first quarter of this year. And in the wake of the damage from the Banking Royal Commission, Australian banks have tried to win back public support by redrafting their code of conduct. 
The new code follows a demand from the corporate regulator, the Australian Securities Investments Commission, for a complete rewrite of the existing rules drawn up by the banks. The new code will provide better protection for small business borrowers and it expands the reach and impact of legal protections against unfair contract terms. The new code prohibits banks from imposing a range of potentially unfair and one-sided terms in lending contracts for small businesses that borrow up to $3 million. And this will cover 92 to 97% of businesses in Australia. The new code also introduces a commitment to look after vulnerable customers and customers on low incomes and Indigenous customers, protections around the sale of products such as credit insurance, greater protection of co-guarantors of loans, and enhanced processes for assisting customers in financial difficulty and processes for resolving complaints. Meanwhile, the Hain Royal Commission into Financial Services is continuing, and ASIC, the Australian Securities Investments Commission, says it will look at the code again in wake of the findings of the Commission. And that's it for this week. And next week we have a terrific interview with Jeff Stringer from the Traveller website. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.